The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And welcome to Kink Week. Ladies and gentlemen, today we are talking about BDSM. Uh, next time we'll be talking about the dominatrix figure, uh, dominatrices. Um, but yeah, we, we have fielded a lot of requests to talk about these issues, these topics, in the wake of, you might expect it, Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, as of the time this podcast is coming out, Fifty Shades of Grey has, probably the, the film fervor has died down a little bit. And I was thinking, Caroline, about how Stuff Mom Never Told You, though, has been around so long that in 2011, when the books went viral, we got a ton of questions. Mm -hmm. And then more recently, we got all the same questions again with the film. So we decided it was time for us to really talk about BDSM. That's right. And it's it's interesting that there hasn't been a ton of academic research about BDSM in the past. It's it's only now that we seem to be really seeing more academic papers, more actual books diving into the culture and not in a way that treats it like a, a mental problem. Yeah, I think the fact that it is becoming more and more accepted as a lifestyle and even for some people as a sexual orientation, in mm -hmm. fact, that more attention has been paid to it as a legitimate and fully acceptable and healthy expression of sexuality and also mm -hmm. a lifestyle, even a profession for some people. That's right. Well, so let's get into a bit of an overview of BDSM, talk about what it is and what it is not. And one thing that it is not, for sure, is a single homogenous group of people, activities, and kinks. Even the letters themselves in the acronym stand for more than one thing. The B and the D stand for bondage and discipline. D and S together are domination and submission, and then the S and the M are sadism and masochism. So what do all of those individual components mean? Well, when it comes to discipline, for instance, it's usually a dominant person or the dom training a submissive person. And then when it comes to submissive, you have, have a person who freely seeks and consents, which is important, to submit to another person. And this is also where we get into the realm of BDSM is not Fifty Shades of Grey. Right, exactly, because so much of the BDSM core is that consent, that issue of consent. And so the dom or the dominant is a person who enjoys being with the submissive person for, for myriad reasons. Could just be the issue of control, could be sexual, could be non-sexual. Um, switching is a term that basically means alternating between the submissive and dominant roles. Sadism is getting pleasure from the pain, humiliation, or suffering of others. And masochism is getting pleasure from your own pain or humiliation. And the way that this manifests is through a huge range of activities as well, which makes it difficult to define and even pin down 
numbers because some activities don't all involve pain. For instance, some might involve power plays. Some might involve、uh, fantasy scenes. I mean, they're they're all different. Ways in which BDSM can be practiced and enjoyed, and this is also to listeners one reason why we will not be able to cover in granular detail every single aspect of、right. BDSM because, again, it's not a homogenous group, and I think that that's one important clarification for people not familiar with it that it's not. This one group of people in the corner, all doing the same kind of thing, right? Which is why I definitely encourage you when you listen during either during or after you listen to this episode to go to stuffonnevertoldyou.com and check out the sources that we're going to post for this episode because there is just so much more to learn about and read about things that aren't just they're not just、uh, some shady, dirty corner of the internet. Like this, there's actual really great information out there、uh, for you if you're interested. But it's also worth noting that BDSM doesn't always even make up all of a person's sexual activity, and this is coming from a 2006 study cited in some of the things that we read. 11 percent of BDSM practitioners in this study exclusively engaged in BDSM play during sexual intimacy. 32 percent said it constituted less than half of their total sexual activity. So. There's, like Kristen said, there's a range of activities. There's also just a range of how ingrained these activities are in people's lives and and the type of sexual activity they pursue. And sex, in and of itself, and thinking about different kinds of penetration or even nudity, may or may not be involved in certain kinds of BDSM、mm-hmm. activities. But the key to All of this, whatever form BDSM takes, and this is something that anyone within the BDSM community will emphasize over and over and over again, is the importance of consent. The community embraces the framework or motto of safe, sane, and consensual because this is erotic play, and as part of that, there are often rules, there are safe words, there are boundaries that are established before anything even happens as to what is on and off the table. Right, because those boundaries and the issues of trust and communication are so key, in addition to consent in the BDSM community, and those are sort of the sticking points that a lot of people have. Of with Fifty Shades of Grey, both the books and the film. Yeah, and, and before quickly before we get into the BDSM versus Fifty Shades, because we got to talk about it, people. Even though I know a lot of folks cringe at the thought of Fifty Shades, it's important for us to talk about this. But also, too, making a note about that safe part of safe, sane, and consensual. Even though, yes, a lot of BDSM play might involve pain, bondage, restraint. The point of it is not to hurt the under, other individual. It might be to arouse pain, yes, but you want to stay safe always in、mm-hmm. that in that case. You're not trying to break people's bones and do irreparable damage to bodies. Right. Exactly.、Uh, well, so Kristen and I read this interesting article by Emma Green over at the Atlantic, which came out in February of this year, 2015. And Green points out that you know there is a little bit of good. That came from the popularity of Fifty Shades of Grey, and that is that it served as sort of an opening to talk and think about BDSM、uh, and kink and those communities and the activities therein, and the fact that it's reached a broader audience than any other BDSM novel before it. So it has people talking, it has people thinking not only about other people's sexuality and what other people are doing, but 
what they themselves might be interested in. Yeah, and it probably has people experimenting. How many <laughs> flimsy trend stories have we seen about escalating sales of rope at hardware stores in middle America? <laughs> yeah, but unfortunately, according to Green, you know, there's a, there's some good and some bad with Fifty Shades of Grey, and the bad is everything else. Yeah, I mean, the the whole framework of Fifty Shades of Grey, which, side note, in case you don't know, I love this fact about Fifty Shades of Grey, that E.L. James originally wrote it as a Twilight fan fiction. So this is really where we're starting from. Yeah. Uh, and I have read Fifty Shades of Grey, Caroline. I mean, skimming some parts because, yeah, it is really poorly written. Um, but the big problem is that Christian Grey's uh, proclivities for bondage are framed as a problem, that they are rooted in the fact that his mother committed suicide and previously had been abused by a pimp, so he has all these issues, and so that's why he has to do this one thing. And mm-hmm. the fairy tale ending is for when they can finally have vanilla sex. Yeah, it's it's definitely framed as something that he needs to and does work through in order to get to the the better sex, which is vanilla. Yeah, which, uh, by the way, for people who might not be familiar with vanilla, that is sort of the the BDSM community's code word for the usually straight sex, often missionary style, that is the mainstream go-to, i.e. vanilla, boring. Right. But it's not only green. Green's problem with Fifty Shades is not just that BDSM and bondage and things like that are are framed as something to work through and a problem, but also the association between hot sex and violence, but without any of the community's context of consent, communication, trust and boundaries. And she she writes about how the character of Anna, the, the main character, is uncomfortable with a lot of this stuff, but is too shy to speak her mind or is afraid of losing Christian. And so she gives consent to things she doesn't necessarily want to consent to and ends up getting hurt and wanting out of it. But she doesn't get out of it. Yeah. And and the very fact that there are no rules and boundaries and safe words established beforehand, he just opens up the door to the red room and, you know, no holds barred. And, And also the fact, too, that it portrays Again, that vanilla sex as the most intimate, that's the most wholesome, that's the the only acceptable kind, whereas the kinky sex is very unhealthy. It's not, as Emma Green writes, a form of erotic play. It's an emotional bargain and it tolerates it barely because she's scared of what will happen if she doesn't. And that, I don't know about you, Caroline, but that doesn't sound terribly consensual. No, nor does it sound very fun. Um, But plenty of people do think... BDSM, the lifestyle, the community, and everything they're in is fun. Yeah. Because it has a pretty darn extensive history going all the way back to ancient times. For instance, going all the way back to 490 BC, we have this thing called the Etruscan Tomb of the Whipping, which has a painting on the wall, an erotic painting, depicting two men flogging a woman. Um, and it's definitely like specifically portrayed as an erotic act, not as necessarily punishment. But there were a ton of ancient cults back in the day that incorporated flagellation and whipping of yourself or or others. And it could be punishment or as a way to enter an altered state of consciousness or even communicate with God. And also, too, the Kama Sutra mentions sexual spanking, slapping, and biting. So this is not new behavior, which is not surprising. Humans have been figuring out, you know, playing around with these lines between pleasure and pain 
As long as we have existed, really. Well, Kristen, you mentioned spanking. Yes. Uh, and I mentioned uh, flogging. Yes. And these are two things that our favorite characters, the Victorians, were w- way into. Oh, my gosh. And it makes so much sense. Yeah. So Salon, Tracy Clark Flory over at Salon spoke with Deborah Lutz, who is the author of Pleasure Bound, Victorian Sex Rebels and the New Eroticism, all about the popularity of the so-called flage porn in Victorian England. And this also, too, ties in with our podcast a while back on fat-bottomed girls and Victorians' obsession with women's behinds, which then got into Victorian pornography mm-hmm. involving spanking, lots of derriere. <laughs> Derriere-centered. Yes, very derriere-centered pornographic images. Well, yeah, this flage porn was super popular. About half of the pornography from 1840 to 1880 centered on flogging. And this was everything from novels to plays to lectures to poems. Although it wasn't as a lead-up to intercourse necessarily. I mean, flagellation was really the focus of these publications. And for example, this is the title of an actual lecture at the time. Get ready, because it's a long one. Quote, Experimental lecture by Colonel Spanker on the exciting and voluptuous pleasures to be derived from crushing and humiliating the spirit of a beautiful and modest young lady, as delivered by him in the assembly room of the Society of Aristocratic Flagellants. (laughs) Colonel Spanker. I love it. I love it. I would love to see the publication that that was in, that that, whether, I doubt it was like a real lecture. Who knows? Who knows? We don't know. But I would, I would love to see where that was published. I want to see the accompanying illustration of Colonel Spanker. Oh my God. Do you think he looks like the Kentucky Fried Chicken Colonel? Maybe. Did, did he wear a military uniform? Oh, I, I hope so. <laughs> um, well, then there was a, uh, a memoir called, The Spirit of Flagellation, or the memoirs of Mrs. Hinton, who kept a school many years at Kensington. So lovely background information there. Yeah. And also, meanwhile, while this is going on in Victorian England, hop over to Japan in the Edo period, which lasts from 1603 to 1868. And this is when you have the emergence of Kinbaku bondage, which translates to the beauty of tight binding. So it's a cross-cultural mm-hmm. thing as well. Yeah. And so in England at the time, prostitution is legal. And there are a ton of flagellation brothels where men would go to be whipped by women or other men. I mean, it, this was a big thing. This was a big, like, pop culture, secret, not-so-secret obsession. Yeah, and we're going to talk about the dominatrix in our next episode this week. But a quick fact preview, Caroline, at those flagellation brothels, the sort of proto-dominatrix women were often referred to as Whipstresses. Ooh. Yes. Or governesses, which says a uh, lot. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, one illustration of this cultural phenomenon is atheist poet Algernon Charles Swinburne, who really resented Christianity's uh, restraining sexual expression. And uh, Swinburne compared the Virgin Mary, actually, to a kind of sadistic sexual dominatrix, speaking of dominatrices. And he himself had been flogged uh, by authorities and beaten up by other boys while at Eton. And flagellation makes its way into a ton of his writing. But he was not the only one. This whole, like, flogged at Eton thing is a theory behind a lot of the popularity of flag porn, that it was just, like, sort of a cultural phenomenon that you were going to be 
beaten up, basically, as part of your punishment at school. And so other theories, though, uh, coming out of the Victorian period when they were so obsessed with this stuff, was that middle and upper class men expect were expected to control themselves, their wives, their servants, and women were expected to be submissive. So perhaps men wanted to lose control. And there were also issues of closeted homosexuality at the time because lots of flash porn focuses on men whipping boys. And that whole issue of men being in control and women being submissive comes up again uh, when we talk about BDSM and dominate dominatrices today. The whole issue of like gender dynamics and gender norms and who's responsible for what and who has to be what in our society. It's a, a theory we see today a lot, too, is people losing control. Yeah, I mean, it's a question, too, of how much is this, are there maybe social influences, are our societal roles possibly provoking us to want to upturn those a bit mm-hmm. behind closed doors? Or how many of, how much of it, too, is just simply, you know, in, in the case of the flogging at Eden, when it happens, being like, oh, you know what, I actually kind of like that. And it's as simple <laughs> As that. Yeah. Well, the thing is, though, a guy named Richard Kraft von Ebbing did not simplify things at all. He actually is a big reason why a lot of this has been considered for so long to be unhealthy, deviant behavior. And in the mid 1880s, in his book, Psychopathia Sexualis, von Kraft Ebbing comes up with the terms sadism and masochism based on 18th century aristocrat and author Marquita Saad, who wrote 120 Days of Sodom, and 19th century Austrian writer Leopold von Sacher Masek, who wrote Venus and Furs. And von Kraft Ebbing, I always want to call him Kraft von Ebbing, <laughs> he characterized it as a perversion. Well, sure he did, because this is the same guy we cited in our female ejaculation episode, mm-hmm. where he said that the only women who ejaculated are weak-minded lesbians. Oh. So he's not a very tolerant open-minded sexologist. Although heralded at the time for his genius. Well, yeah, of course, as was Freud. Yes. he. So in the early 20th century, he and Havelock Ellis, his buddy, stuck the terms sadism and masochism together, and the theories that they, they developed from that became part of the foundation for their whole theory of sexual development. Basically, Freud thought sadomasochist personalities stemmed from a child watching the punishment of a sibling where that sibling is viewed as a rival for the father's affection. Then that child begins to identify with the sibling who's being beaten, imagines enjoying the treatment and therefore develops a masochistic fantasy. The child, as he grows up, then represses the image and converts it into a fully eroticized and sadistic fantasy. So that's that's Freud's explanation for this. All right, Freud. Thanks for that contribution. Yep, always. <laughs> well, in the 1930s, we have the earliest heterosexual uh, S&M groups in the United States, which were mostly centered in New York, and a lot of them were really into the surrealist art movement as well and highly influenced by the writings of the Marquis de Sade, including American writer and explorer William Seabrook, who, fun fact, became a hit among hit Parisians at the time after he allegedly participated in a cannibalistic rite while traveling to the Ivory Coast. So he was 
He was really, really cool dude. He was yeah. like, hey, I've done this. And also, P.S., I'm really into bondage. And he was really open about it. Yeah, colorful character. He wrote, uh, my propensity for putting chains on ladies was common knowledge. It was a sexual abnormality like many another. So he's basically like, so who cares? I'm doing it anyway. And in 1929, he commissioned artist Man Ray, who is a surrealist, to photograph women wearing bondage gear. And Man Ray himself was really fascinated with the philosophy of the Marquis de Sade. And also, I mean, he he kind of tried to separate his sexuality from his BDSM uh, fascination and the photographs that he would take. And also his relationships, his outright S&M relationships that he had with wives and mm-hmm. girlfriends at the time. Yeah, reading about Man Ray, it's, it's all very complicated. Um, he does definitely, like you said, try to separate the sexuality from the actual dominating behavior. Um, there was definitely some beating women with belts and, you know, trying to control them and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and where that kind of behavior, at least reading it and reading his account of it, seems a lot more like domestic violence than consensual BDSM play. Right. He definitely, although he worked very closely with Seabrook, he considered Seabrook to basically be a weirdo, which I'm like, hello, pot, hello, kettle. Um, but he considered Seabrook to be such a weirdo because Seabrook definitely got off on it. Like, it, it was definitely part of his sexual uh preferences, basically. And Man Ray was like, oh, no, not me. I just like to... It's just art and philosophy for right. me. And he actually, as part of their work together, Man Ray helped Seabrook design an erotic collar in which Seabrook's wife was photographed that made it hard for the wearer to breathe or swallow. And apparently Seabrook really enjoyed watching his wife wear it at dinner parties because she could barely eat or drink anything. Yeah, and Seabrook also was known to have fancy cocktail parties and invite important people over and then uh, just in the middle of the party have women in bondage gear just come out and then... Um, see what happened. Yeah, with the cocktail weenie tray. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> After that. But, but Man Ray's photography was definitely influential in terms of uh, creating all of these kinds of um, eroticized images of women tied up or wearing bondage gear that we will see, too, being depicted in lots of fashion editorials pretty much ever since then. Mm-hmm. Um, so Man Ray was a... He was an interesting figure in all this. A bit, I, I don't know exactly how I feel about him. But controversial. He's, yeah. he's a controversial figure. But influential, nonetheless, because this was the thing, Caroline and I were talking about this before we were recording, how you have all of the flage porn in the Victorian era, and then we have a lot of stuff happening after World War II, which we're going to talk about in a second. But then there's this massive gap, except for, really, mm-hmm. these surrealists, particularly... Seabrook and Man Ray. So it, it's kind of a, they're, they're sort of filling a, a peculiar gap in all of this. Yeah. But I mean, speaking of post-war, after World War II, that's when we really see the gay BDSM subcultures emerging. And it's often referred to as the old guard versus the new guard, which is more recent. Although there is some discussion about, oh, what really constitutes new? But anyway, so you have soldiers returning from the war and 
over in Europe, they had really had their first homosocial experience for many of them. Uh, and this is coming from psychotherapist Guy Baldwin. He basically points out that being part of the military, there's lots of rule following. It's a very exclusive brotherhood. And so in the early 50s, you see the emergence of the hypermasculine uh, dom subculture in contrast to a lot of the effeminate stereotypes surrounding gay men of the time. And then in the later 50s, we have emerged sort of the stereotype, what we think about when we think of leather culture, which is that whole leather biker subculture subculture that sort of revolved around camaraderie, risk-taking, and hyper-masculine sexuality. So not too far removed, although more leather, but not too far removed from that hyper-masculine military culture. Well, and speaking of hyper-masculine military culture, too, pinups were very big during the war. And with this, too, more after the war, we have the arrival of Betty Page, who we could do an entire podcast on. But she became an international sex symbol and pinup. And from 1949 to 1957, an estimated 20,000 photos of her were taken. And she has, for instance, one iconic photo in Playboy for a Christmas edition where she's holding up mistletoe and wearing nothing but a Santa hat. Lots of, you know, pinuppy photos like that. But also, too, when she was first starting out, uh, she met Irving Claw and his sister Paula, who specialized in bondage photography. So there are all of these photos. She kind of became the face of this bondage photography, whether she herself was the one tied up or wearing a ball gag or the one wielding a whip dressed up in more dominatrix gear. And she always looks so delighted, though, <laughs> in all of all of her photos. But she's a fascinating figure who, after 1957, completely drops off. I don't think uh, another photo of her was even ever taken except for a mugshot many years later. But she was... I feel like in terms of our maybe pop cultural uh, iconography, she's definitely one in the 50s to sort of symbolize uh, heterosexual bondage sexuality. Yeah. Um, and we move into the 60s, into mainstream culture. There are also a couple of interesting examples that pop up, such as the Adams Family, which totally has BDSM undertones or, and outright overtones with Morticia often getting tied up. Um, and then Carol Queen, who is a sexologist and a chief cultural officer for Good Vibrations, she told Alternet that, quote, Emma Peel's cat suit in the television show The Avengers back in the 60s is a perfect example as of what would now be viewed as fetish garb. Yeah. And think of Catwoman, too. Eartha oh, totally. Kitt on Batman. Yes, wearing the same kind of thing. Yeah, cat suit, whip. Yep. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that more in the Dominatrix <laughs> episode. Don't worry. But when we move into the 1970s, that's when we really see formal support groups emerging, like the Eulenspiegel Society in New York and the Society of Janice in San Francisco. And when we look to gay leather subculture in the 70s, uh, they have bars and biker clubs as the foundations of their groups, but those morph into social clubs uh, and become more formal organizations to the point where in 1972 we see the publishing of the Leatherman's Handbook. So people are getting organized, and we shouldn't forget lesbians. They had their own S&M organizations like Samwa, which first met in 1978. And the book Coming to Power, Writing and Graphics on Lesbian S&M was published in 1981. 
And people still talk about this book and the effect it had on them. It was basically the first collection of information about lesbian S&M and their community. And it contains plenty of advice, theory, discussions on the community. And it served as a major resource for people back then, but still now. And it seems like the 80s in particular was pivotal for the BDSM community. Obviously, this is pre-internet days, but for the modern BDSM community taking shape. And also, too notably, in 1988, we have uh, Robert Mapplethorpe's highly controversial uh, photography exhibit, The Perfect Moment, which really showcases that gay leather subculture for the first time. But it's not until the 90s that the term BDSM comes about. And of course, with the Internet, as with other things such as polyamory, asexuality, things we've talked about before on the podcast, the Internet was pivotal for people really coming together over these shared interests, anonymously or not, and creating more community and even more activism around this. But then that basically brings us up to today uh, when the American BDSM community comprises about a thousand diverse groups. And that's I mean, that doesn't even count. That's just groups. That doesn't even count. Just like people in the neighborhood, you know, just your neighbors, your <laughs> next door neighbors. Yeah. Steve over there, you know, and his BDSM li- lifestyle. Oh, Steve's a good guy. Yeah. Cool dude. Um, it, which, although is understandable at this point, kind of understanding this rich history and also the diversity that we see today. It's understandable by why the BDSM community might not be so happy in having their entire community and lifestyle and history collapsed into one book about a girl meeting a very wealthy man. Right, because there there is so much to it. There's there's so much more than just tying someone up. There's so much interesting psychology to talk about the personalities that are attracted to BDSM and why. Um, but we will get into that when we come right back from a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Bare Minerals. Bare Minerals started the clean beauty revolution in 1995 when they launched their original foundation. Since then, the clean beauty brand has continued to make cruelty-free skincare and makeup products for all. I love the original foundation. It has only five clean mineral ingredients. It provides customizable sheer to full coverage. It feels lightweight and breathable on my skin. And it's available in 30 shades. It also promotes clear, healthier looking skin over time. As creators of clean beauty, Bare Minerals is driven by purity in formulation and uncompromising performance. That's why all of their products are good for skin and cruelty-free. Use the foundation finder at bareminerals.com to find your perfect shade match. Start upgrading to a clean beauty routine. They are offering first-time customers 15% off their entire purchase. Just enter code MOM at checkout. Again, enter code MOM at bareminerals.com for 15% off your first clean beauty order. Bare Minerals, the power of good. So, you know, I mentioned at the top of the podcast that there hasn't historically been a ton of research into BDSM beyond that people have considered it sort of an abnormality. Um, but consensual BDSM behavior has increasingly been accepted as an alternative sexuality, not as evidence that practitioners suffer from psychological disorder or were victims of childhood abuse. Those two things were like huge theories for a long time. Yeah, and even in 1992, when the dsm 4 came out, it defined kink and BDSM practices as paraphilias or unusual sexual fixations. And that designation really stigmatized 
the whole practice and made it unclear as to whether or not, say, this kind of sexual deviance, if you want to call it that, is actually a disorder. So fast forward to the DSM-5, which was released in May 2013. It's still in there, but... It's not necessarily pathologizing all BDSM community members because the new definition at least draws a line between consenting adults playing rough and actual pathology. Basically saying like, yeah, usually this stuff is totally fine unless it is inhibiting your day to day life and well-being. Yeah. And this was thanks a lot to efforts by advocacy group National Coalition for Sexual Freedom, which fought against certain types of sexual behavior being classified as markers of mental illness. Um, I mean, it was to the point where BDSM could be used in court as justification to remove kids from custody. And now they're seeing a drop off in that, that just because someone has this preference, this hobby, this interest, whatever, it doesn't mean that they're an unfit parent. So at least that's a step forward. And there are some advocates, too, even pushing for BDSM to be recognized as its own sexual orientation, which is controversial. It's very controversial, but interesting to think about it in that way. So what brings people to BDSM? Is it just Christian Greys, men with lots of disposable income who have mother issues, Caroline? Is that what we're working with here? (laughs) Oh, there's so much more than that, although I'm sure he looks good in a suit. And so this is coming from the journal Psychology and Sexuality from 2012. And the authors essentially narrowed down uh, the reasons for being attracted to BDSM uh, to internal versus external influences. And so they said that BDSM interests can be either an intrinsic, almost inexplicable part of the self. In other words, you're born this way. And that's the explanation that's more common in community literature. Or they develop because of external influences like a partner, friend or the media, Fifty Shades of Grey, gets you interested in it. And what's interesting in terms of gender, you know, people talk a lot about the roles of a dominant versus a submissive in these relationships. But the only differences they noted gender wise were found among submissives. They found that more men than women cited intrinsic self as the reason that they were attracted to BDSM and more women than men cited external influences. Okay. Now, when it comes though to those external influences, a group of those female subs said that those external influences eventually became an essential part of themselves, as if they'd finally discovered their true nature or identity. Although that said, an Atlantic video that was also uh, put together by Emma Green, who we cited earlier, cited a 2009 study in which both men and women reported a preference for being dominated versus doing the dominating, which Mm. is kind of interesting. But one thing, too, in terms of this intrinsic explanation that you say is, you know, is more common in community literature. There was one study uh, mentioned in one of our sources that I don't have in front of me right now, which talked about how most BDSM participants are aware of their particular kink by the time they're teenagers. I mean, that means that some of them are aware of it from a very early age. That Oh, hey, this feels really good. I like this. I'm drawn to this. I see this. Mm-hmm. For instance, Bob Flanagan, who calls himself a super masochist and is the focus of the documentary Sick, talks about how when he was a kid watching Cowboys and Native American TV shows in parts when someone would get tied up, he was like, oh, hey. I really like that. So a lot of these things do do tend to start. We have an awareness of them. Yeah. Whether we're aware of it or not. 
Yeah, and the authors of that psychology and sexuality uh, study talk about how it's possible that intrinsic motivation is cited more often in order to legitimize BDSM, possibly in order to make it, to qualify it as a sexual orientation, but also sort of following in the footsteps of LGBT community members who have come before who have worked to counter discrimination by saying we are born this way, this is intrinsic, this is, uh, you know, part and parcel of who I am, not something that I just chose for myself one day. But also the researchers say that this whole intrinsic versus external influence and man versus woman, it follows previously noted patterns that men are more likely to say that their sexuality and sexual orientation is set from birth, whereas women are more likely to understand their sexuality as fluid and responsive to social contexts and even different partners. So, I mean, I think that's fascinating in and of itself. Yeah, and I want to say... Two, though, that their, their statistics seem to indicate that women are also likelier to switch mm-hmm. compared to men, which to me corroborates the, the fluidity stuff that we hear about a lot when it yeah. comes to, to women. But what about personalities? Um, there was a study published in 2014 in the Canadian Journal of Human Sexuality analyzing personalities associated with DS relationships so if it found that doms score higher than subs on desire for control, extroversion, self-esteem, and life satisfaction, whereas subs scored higher on emotionality. But one important thing about submissives, even though the word is submissive and that might lead you to a lot of word association to think that they must be inherently weak people, I will again quote Bob Flanagan, who said, uh, he, he, by the way, has cystic fibrosis or had cystic fibrosis. He died um, a few years ago. He said, quote, a masochist is actually a very strong person. I think some of that strength is what I used to combat the illness. So there's that. Yeah. And it turns out that BDSM practitioners may actually be better off psychologically than the rest of us. And this is coming from a May 2013 study in the Journal of Sexual Medicine, our favorite journal. Uh, but writing about this, the people over at Live Science said that participants in the BDSM community were more extroverted, more open to new experiences and more conscientious than, quote unquote, vanilla participants. They were also less neurotic, a personality trait marked by anxiety. They point out that BDSM aficionados also scored lower than the general public on rejection sensitivity, which is a measure of how paranoid people are about others disliking them. And they said that people in the scene reported higher levels of well-being during the previous two weeks than people outside of it. And they reported more secure feelings of attachment in their relationships. Probably because of the trust involved. That is imperative for these kinds of relationships to happen in a healthy way as the community advocates. Yeah, and when they broke it down, specifically looking at dominant, submissive, and switch roles, they found that dominance tended to score the highest in all of these psychological health measures. Submissive scored the lowest, and switches were in the middle. But even though submissives were the lowest, they still never scored lower than your average run-of-the-mill vanilla study participants on mental health and frequently scored higher. So what's going on then? Well, the researchers say that, I mean, and this makes sense, 
BDSM participants tend to be more aware of their sexual needs and their desires than these so-called vanilla people they were compared to. And that leads to less frustration in the bedroom and in relationships overall. Plus, I mean, they've had to come to terms with their so-called unusual sexual predilections. And in choosing to live that BDSM lifestyle, it takes a lot of hard work psychologically. You have to come to terms with a lot. You're, you're acting in a way that is different from the norm. And so all of that psychological work pays off in positive mental health. And so the lead researcher's conclusion to all of this was, hey, you know what we should take out of the DSM? All of this stuff, which is not linked to poor mental health. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people point out, are there people who are in the BDSM community who were victims of abuse as children? Yes. But there are people in every aspect of life who were had a difficult childhood or a difficult phase in their lives that they still have to grapple with to this day. And so that is not an explicit, like definite connection. Yeah. And, and questions, too, of violence and consent and all of these things. It is so easy for I mean, we fingers tend to be pointed to this community. But one thing we haven't addressed with all of this that we have to talk about is reconciling BDSM with feminism, because for a long time, there have been some hardline feminists who have said no way. This whole DS stuff is simply regurgitating patriarchal structures mm-hmm. in the bedroom. Any kind of uh, what would appear to be violent acts in the bedroom is only, you know, perpetuating patterns of domestic abuse. This is bad, bad, bad. Yeah. And it's not that I don't get the point. However, people's sexual lives are their own to choose and participate in. But we we owe a lot of gratitude to Catherine Scott over at Bitch, who did an entire 24-article series on BDSM and kink, and she pulls so much fascinating stuff to talk about, including, she goes all the way back to the 1970s and 80s, second-wave feminism, and that's when we get a lot of the division with feminists saying that you know, you, we just can't tolerate women being dominated and women who want to be dominated for sure that they are actually damaging feminism. Yeah, she cites author Kathleen Berry, who wrote, I believe it was female sexual slaves who described BDSM as, quote, a disguise for the act of sexually forcing a woman against her will and lesbians involved in SNM DS relationships were not off the hook as well because they were accused of replicating, quote, the very masculine power dynamics used to perpetuate women's oppression, which is a lot. But this is also around the time, too, that you have Catherine McKinnon, who is incredibly sex negative, who's basically saying that, you know, penis vaginal penetration is is all kinds of bad just to begin with. Hmm. Yeah, the argument was one of the arguments anyway, was essentially that we as women can never truly consent to a model that has been shoved down our throats forever. And uh, and writing in Ms. Magazine in 1995, Norma Ramos says that women are socialized into actually getting sexual pleasure through their powerlessness. Essentially, you can't even trust your own sexual desires. You need to do whatever you can to uproot all of that and figure out what's wrong with you and why you feel this way and why you want to be submissive, because clearly the patriarchy is instilling this in your head. 
And in case you haven't been able to tell from our tone in the past few minutes, Caroline and I do not buy this. I think that that's a very toxic message and also a really simplistic message and way to approach this not so simplistic community. Um, Pro BDSM feminist Gail Rubin has written about how the feminists who condemn female submissives, quote, mistake their sexual preferences for a universal system that will or should work for everybody. In other words, slamming subs is simply bigotry fueled by personal prejudices. Yeah, and continuing this theme, blogger Cliff Pervocracy says, listen, I don't get on vanilla women's cases about how maybe they're only vanilla because society discourages women from unconventional sexual choices. So, you know, don't criticize me. And this was something, too, that blogger Jessica Wakeman uh, dealt with firsthand when uh, a few years ago she wrote an essay about her preference for spanking in the bedroom and has also written openly about a DS relationship that she had for a while. And she did an interview with Jezebel about this and also the flack that she got from some feminists about saying, you know, how could you be doing this? How can you be a real feminist and do this? And she said, I I thought she put it well. She said, quote, the argument that women who enjoy BDSM are taught they should be submissive in bed is insulting to me as a feminist. I'm not a little girl who needs other people to tell me what's best for me. I choose to trust the men I play with. I know what kind of pornography and erotica turns me on and so on and so forth. In other words, saying, yeah, I have complete and total agency with these choices that I'm making that I know I derive sexual pleasure from. And it's not like she's taking that and then replicating it out in her day to day life. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what a lot of people have had problems with in terms of differentiating between sexual fantasy and real life, essentially. Not to say that sex isn't real life, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not very comfortable with the whole damned if you do, damned if you don't thing in terms of telling women how they should enjoy what kind of sex. Well, and hasn't female sexuality in general been so completely overlooked and marginalized and or regulated for time immemorial that feminists of all people don't do that to me, too? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's important to remember the context of today's BDSM community in which consent is everything. So there is a line between consensual kink and actual violence against women. And uh, going back to the bitch writer, Catherine Scott, she compares this to the difference between skydiving and getting pushed out of an airplane. One is all about personal choice and exhilaration. And the other is something that you obviously did not consent to and could lead to severe injury. She writes about how BDSM places the submissive's right to choose, the right to change their mind, the right to say no, the right to pleasure front and center. And after all, We're not questioning the agency of men who seek out the services of a dominatrix. Which will lead us into our next episode. And and an important thing to keep in mind, too, when considering the fact that these communities exist. Mm -hmm. And if it is something that you hear about and that you think about and that you want nothing to do with, that's totally okay. Like the the quote-unquote mainstreaming of BDSM and just the acceptance of the fact that it exists and it's not deviant and no people's, you know, child custody shouldn't be taken away from them because they happen to enjoy a lot of leather. 
is not saying that, hey, you know what? You're going to have to do this, too. A ball gags for everybody. That's that's not the platform. Yeah. I think, in fact, though, we do if we, by we vanilla sex havers do have plenty to learn from the BDSM community in terms of establishing trust and mm-hmm. establishing consent, because before any of this stuff that might frighten some of us, because before anything actually goes down, there's a whole process there are, you know, there, there, there are talks, there are meals, there are walks in the park, there are lots of, I mean, there's a relationship established and there's something to be said for that that is far different from the kind of knee-jerk sex that we deem acceptable, which could be equally, if not more, damaging in some ways. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of telling people what they can and can't do, I mean, that leads us to a group that's often underrepresented in discussions about BDSM and in depictions of BDSM, which is the community of black women or women of color who enjoy race play, which is something that a lot of people are wagging their fingers at women for participating in. And it is very controversial and complicated because of our own country's history of actual, literal slave-master relationship between whites and blacks. This came up when Justin Timberlake and Sierra released a video where he was leading her around on a chain. And a lot of people got very upset about those depictions. Uh, but the one woman who Catherine Scott quoted uh, said, I can't do race play because I have people in my family who had to submit to that where they had no choices. It's too close to home for American black people. Um, but there were other people quoted who were talking about like, Ugh, I, I know it's I know it's a little complicated and a little controversial and I would never uh, participate in anything like this in, you know, quote unquote, real life. But it's something that I do behind closed doors that I just don't talk about. And it's the whole idea that just because we shouldn't tell any woman in general that she should not enjoy being a sub, no one can really tell a person of color that she shouldn't enjoy race play. It's another aspect of the BDSM community that people can consent to. Well, and I think one of those people that Catherine Scott talked to, it might have been the the woman you just quoted, who said, hey, if I enjoy this, this doesn't mean that I want to walk out on the street back into the Jim Crow era. Right. You know, there again, it's about differentiating sexual fantasy and playing with taboo and deviance and all of that. And what is <laughs> what the rest of life, yeah. you know? But I mean, along these lines, there is a documentary called Black Pervert coming out this year that's basically navigating where people of color fit into the BDSM landscape. And it's just one of, well, it will be when it comes out, one of many resources, documentaries, films about this topic. And Kristen and I didn't even have time to really get into all of them. We could go on and on and on about this, uh, but we can't because I don't think anyone wants to listen to an 18-hour podcast. But we wanted to close with recommendations from Stuff Mom Never Told You listeners on places to go for more information, sources that they themselves have found helpful. And this is coming from Facebook because we posted uh, before we did this, record this podcast, hey, we're going to be doing this BDSM podcast. What do you think? Send us your sources. So, for further reading and listening, S&M 101 by Jay Wiseman has been quoted as a great resource. Uh, the National Coalition of Sexual Freedom is an organization you might want to Google. 
Philip Miller and Molly Devins, Screw the Roses, Send Me the Thorns, has been mentioned uh, by a number of Facebook fans as well as in a number of sources. Uh, Mistress Matisse is a great resource. She appears on Dan Savage's uh, Savage Love podcast a lot to talk about BDSM. Also cited was the podcast Sex Nerd Sandra, Nina Hartley, Stacey Newmar, and Clarice Thorne. And the book Perv by Jesse Baring also has some good sources in there. Um, so we definitely appreciate the recommendations. Yeah. And speaking of Clarice Thorne, I'm curious to look at uh, her recent book, The S&M Feminist, because I'm sure there is a lot to digest in that. So we want to hear from listeners now. I know that there was a little bit of trepidation about us talking about this because uh, from people who are in the BDSM community, because I think Anytime, you know, mainstream outlets want to approach BDSM, it's like, oh, no, what are they going to say now? So uh, we hope that we did it justice and represented you as as well as we could. But I know that there was a lot of stuff that we couldn't talk about. And there are probably lots of reactions people are having about this topic. And let's start a conversation. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast.com. And messages on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. Well, I have one here from Maria. She says, I really want to thank you, ladies. I'm a 26-year-old woman who dropped out of college. I knew I wanted my degree and that I wanted to go back to school, but I was really scared of going back. But I found your podcast. I can say you ladies have helped so much as I am back in school getting my degree. My major is mathematics, and listening to women in math, engineering, and science really helped me see that I can totally do this. Not only that I'm doing much more than getting a degree, but that I'm also helping set an example. Thank you. I really love listening to the podcast and watching videos on YouTube. You ladies have answered so many questions that I have been scared to ask other women. I will let you ladies know when I'll be walking and thank you again for motivating me and seeing that getting my degree is totally worth it. I can't wait to see the new things I'm going to be learning, not just in school, but on the podcast. So congratulations on this major life step, Maria, and thank you for writing in. Well, I've got a letter here from CJ in response to our podcast on the history of fashion modeling. And CJ writes, I used to work for a fashion house and can confirm a lot of what was said about modeling in current times. It was my job to do castings, and I can tell you that the models were considered less like people and more like objects. Not only did your body have to fit the clothes properly, but designers and photographers would talk about your flaws in front of you as if you weren't present. As far as minorities, being a black model has to be hard for the ego. We fought really hard to employ this one black model for a particular season. She was clearly the best candidate, but there was such reluctance from the owner of the label. We eventually convinced the boss to hire her, but at the shoot, the owner kept complaining that her hair was, quote, too ethnic. Now when I see models on the streets of New York, I have such respect. It takes a lot to be a model, and although it may seem glamorous, there is such a strength that must be had to make it. So thanks, CJ, and thanks to everybody who has written into us and also who offered their BDSM sources and suggestions. Your input makes such a difference always on the podcast. So thank you. And again, if you want to email us, momstuffathowstuffworks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with our sources so you can read along, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. 
more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime. Hi everyone, I'm Brooke Burke. I'm Megan King Edmonds. And I'm sex and intimacy coach Leela DeVille. And we have a podcast called Intimate Knowledge. Mm. That's what this show is about. Sex. 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 But it's so much more than that. It's about the ups and downs in your relationship, your sex life. It's about overcoming heartbreak and infidelity. It's about understanding intimacy and what makes you happy. And it's about everything you want to know, but you might be too embarrassed to ask. We're giving you intimate knowledge. Listen to Intimate Knowledge on iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Find us.